Welcome to Worldview from WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Greece reaches a milestone today. It graduates from the EU's three-year emergency loan program. It was the biggest bailout program in history. Greece still faces decades of austerity measures. They'll have to run budget surpluses of over 2% until 2060 to pay back their debt. Over the years of the Greek financial crisis, I've talked with Endi Zemanides. He's executive director of the Hellenic American Leadership Council. Good to see you, Endi. Hi, Jerome. What does today mean emerging from this three-year emergency loan program? What does it really mean for Greece? Well, it's, uh, I actually think it's a little bit like the Odyssey, like Homer's Odyssey. And Greece, just like Odysseus, skipped around uh, – Maybe left uh, the island of Cyclopses and is now with uh, <laughs> Calypso, stuck in, in Calypso. This is the, and the end, Odyssey goes on till 2060. And the Odyssey goes <laughs> on to, to, to 2060. Hopefully, before then, hopefully there is a, a god from Olympus that will <laughs> intervene. But uh, Greece has emerged from the third bailout, right? We have eight years of, of bailouts. So it can go back to the market at market rates and it can try to rebuild itself without uh, without having its creditors play economic sovereigns in Greece. Now, that's arguable too because, they're, like you said, there are certain built-in restrictions. Building uh, the 2.2% surplus – which how many countries are hitting nowadays until 2060 and 3.5 for the next several years. Uh, pension cuts that were pre-baked in, tax hikes. Um, so this is – there's a new challenge that Greece is uh, coming, up, uh, coming up to right now starting today. What does it, has this meant for people in Greece? It sounds like they continue to leave the country a lot of the times. I bet you know people whose relatives have come over and uh, gotten jobs here, done the whole thing. Well, not really here because <laughs> immigration hasn't really <laughs> helped here in the United States. Uh, but yeah, there has been a brain drain, especially in Europe. There's been a, a, a tremendous brain drain, especially in youth because of youth unemployment. Uh, reach critical levels in Greece uh, throughout this crisis, throughout these eight, eight years. Total unemployment was in the high 20s. Uh, the good news is for the first time we we've, during this crisis, we've hit an unemployment under 20 percent. Uh, but the, the, the levels in the real economy are still – any relief, the growth that we've seen hasn't hit the real economy yet. Now, there are pockets, and people will tell you this because people are coming back from vacation now. They'll say, wow, I, on the Greek islands, things are great. You know, on Mykonos, things are great. Well, you know, try being on Mykonos without a big budget and, and see how great things are. You'll see a lot of vacant storefronts. You'll see people trying to do two, two jobs. You'll see... People, you'll see married couples moving back in with parents. Uh, uh, the relief hasn't hit the real economy yet. What does it mean for public services, which uh, got cutbacks? Everybody saw this 
gigantic fire, this wildfire that killed 100 people or so in Greece. And uh, it's that was a heavy thing. And a lot of people said, well, there wasn't enough government help. There wasn't enough um, evacuation plans. They, 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 they were um, kind of atrophied there. Yeah. Well, uh, interestingly enough, just maybe a week or two before the wildfires, a firefighters union said that they don't have enough equipment, enough money. And even in the aftermath of this, it was a private foundation, the Nearhost Foundation, that provided $25 million, uh, for the firefighters. But all discretionary spending, the EU, the IMF, the, 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 the creditors have really cut that in Greece. Have, you know, they, there's this mythology of, you know, cutting your way to growth. Well, you know, they made the cuts in Greece. They still haven't, you know, grown. And even, even when we're talking about the economy is growing now and when we're going to get to surpluses, let's remember the baseline. Greece lost 25% of its GDP. There is no country in peacetime has lost so much. And over the last 10 years, and during this duration of, of the crisis, if you look at the countries that have experienced similar falls, you're talking about Libya, you're talking about Yemen, you're talking about Ukraine, three countries that have gone through war. You're talking about Venezuela, and even though there hasn't been a shooting war there, you can talk about an economic, economic warfare. Um, and the IMF doesn't have reliable numbers on Syria, but I'll bet you they're in there. So think about an EU country that hasn't gone through a shooting conflict and it has had that type of, of drop. This is a monumental failure by the EU. And it's reflected in everything from Greece's fertility rate, 1.38 in 2016. They're, they're, it's going to you know be a 25% decline in population by 2050. The, it, it's a to get growth out of this um, situation, it's, it's, um, it seems like it's impossible. Yeah. And, you know, even before this crisis, Greece, like most of the EU, did not have a sustainable birth rate. <laughs> yep. You know, and this has made it worse. Um, but you have to look at the resiliency of the Greek people, too. Um, I'm kind of a silver lining kind of guy and uh, you see the amount of startups, the startup scene, you and the startups in Greece are led by people who are younger and actually more, they're more females than the typical EU uh, country. Uh, and while Greece has suffered in this, in this economic crisis, they got a double whammy, the migration crisis too. And to think of how Greeks who are already suffering by pension cuts uh, stepped up to, to take care of these refugees and asylum seekers. Uh, and even though, as we've spoken about before on this show, you know, there was the threat of golden dawn. Uh, you look elsewhere in Europe, in Italy, in you know, France, where these type of parties, these far-right parties made it in government. Greece was the one country despite getting hammered by both crises at the same time, that no party is even discussing putting Golden Dawn in government. You know, they may be the third or fourth largest party, but every coalition, there's been six parties in government since this crisis started. Not one of them has negotiated with Golden Dawn. So the resiliency of Greek, the Greek people and Greek democracy is, is a silver lining here. 
I'm talking with Andy Zemanides, Executive Director of the Hellenic American Leadership Council, and we're talking about Greece and their milestone today. They graduate from the EU's three-year emergency loan program coming up in a few minutes. We'll have our regular Monday feature, Puerto Reconstruction, where we talk about building up in Puerto Rico, and we'll talk about the privatization of their prison system in Puerto Rico. Uh, Andy, where do you want to see the the country go from here? How do you think... um, people can help with the situation in Greece? Is there something we can still all do? Yeah. Well, the the one benefit for our listeners is that pro-Americanism in Greece, partly because of the EU's failure, has is at a high. Maybe this is uh, the best bilateral relationship since the time of Harry Truman, right? <laughs> it would, and, and Truman came armed with the Marshall Plan and the Truman Doctrine to help Greece. Uh, in fact, this year, there's a big trade fair every year in Greece, every fall, the Thessaloniki International Fair. And this year, the honored country is the United States. Um, and companies like IBM and Google and Facebook, they're all, they're all going. Uh, there's, there are investment opportunities. But I also think there's, there's a great need for foreign direct investment in Greece. Um, the U.S., because of turmoil elsewhere in the region, specifically Turkey, people who are looking at emerging markets may, may want to look at – nobody's considering Greece as an emerging market because it's an EU country. But look where it's starting from. It, it's an emerging market and there are terrific opportunities in tech because of the high tech sector. We have a couple Chicago companies, in fact, that have back office space and, and have uh, high tech workers – uh, in Greece, um, there are op- obviously op- all kinds of opportunities in tourism. Greece has, for consecutive years, hit records in tourism. Um, you know, hopefully, we can get hometown airlines like United to do year-round service uh, to Greece. Uh, there's in New York, out of Newark, there's some year- year-round service from Emirates, so we need United to uh-huh. to step up here. Um, but there. You know, there's a lot of opportunity uh, and even in cases like uh, disaster relief or emergency management, we're building and we're working with the Chicago Athens sister cities and and the Chicago Marathon, in fact, to try to, to help uh, Greek fire authorities, police, medical, to learn from our experiences with the Office of Emergency Management and Communication and, and mass events. Um, so I think there's a lot that can be done. Well, uh, let's hope for the best for Greece. Andy Zamanides is Executive Director of the Hellenic American Leadership Council here. Thanks for joining us and helping us mark the milestone Greece uh, reach graduating from the EU's three-year emergency loan program. Thanks for giving us the big picture. Thanks, Jerome. Coming up after the break, we'll have our regular Monday feature, Puerto Reconstruction, and we'll talk about the privatization of Puerto Rico's prison system. I'm Jerome McDonald. You're listening to Worldview on WBEZ.
This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. It's time for our Monday feature, Puerto Reconstruction, where we focus on some of the issues facing Puerto Rico as it recovers from Hurricane Maria. With us is Oliver Lachland. He's a senior reporter at The Guardian, and he spent a week in Puerto Rico in the prisons there last month for the story, After Maria, Puerto Rico to Move 3,200 Inmates to Arizona. Thanks for joining us, Oliver. Thanks very much for having me. You know, I don't think most people, when they think about Puerto Rico and reconstruction of Puerto Rico, think about the prison system and what happened to prisons in Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. But what kind of stresses did that put on the prison system? Well, I think that's right. And it's really kind of connected to the fact that post-Maria, the fiscal oversight board that essentially dictates Puerto Rico's economic affairs imposed sweeping austerity measures across a bunch of public services. So obviously the ones that your listeners may be familiar with are the ones to the education services there, to the electricity board. But really every single government department in Puerto Rico was forced to make cuts and cutbacks. And the criminal justice system, and in particular the prison system, was not exempt from that at all. So did the prison system feel any stresses from the hurricane? So not physically. Um, you know, I, I was lucky enough to get into one of the major prisons on the island, the Bayamon Correctional Complex, which is just outside of San Juan. And inmates that I spoke to there basically said that, you know, the physical infrastructure remained the same throughout. Um, it obviously underwent exactly the same sort of problems that people outside of prison went through. So elongated periods without electricity, a lack of running water for about a month. Prisoners also reported not being able to have visitations for over a month on a number of occasions. But ultimately, the prison system in Puerto Rico is an old one. It's quite an aging system. You know, when I was there, I was uh, led into a number of wings that were still sort of using paper records rather than computer systems. Um, even just, you know, looking at the sort of facilities for visitors, you could tell that this is an old system that I think probably a lot of people on, you know, mainland United States would, would find quite shocking, really. So do any of the prisoners want to go to a privatized system in Arizona for, for better conditions? So not prisoners that I met. So when I was at Bayamon, I spent a day uh, interviewing uh, probably over a dozen prisoners uh, to talk about this uh, transfer program. So the, the transfer program is something that's been agreed to by the uh, Corrections Department in Puerto Rico. They want to transfer up to 3,200 inmates over a period of four years to a private prison in Arizona, in Eloy, Arizona, called the La Palma Correctional Facility. The idea behind that is basically to save a lot of money. So, you know, the corrections department uh, is struggling to pay overtime for corrections officers. Uh, it's basically just struggling to maintain the entire system. And so they think that this plan will save up to about $45 million a year. Going back to the idea of whether prisoners want to do it, uh, the corrections secretary, who I spent a long time with interviewing, said they've had about 850 expressions of interest from prisoners. I didn't meet a single one that was interested in doing it. The Corrections Department insists that the whole program will be voluntary, but obviously a lot of prisoners and, and, and civil rights campaigners as well are very, very worried that because the department won't get the numbers they need to fill this contract, they're going to end up having to force people to move over. Well, uh, it sounds like in most instances, prisoners don't want to move far away from um, where, where they committed their crimes because they move away from their families. Wouldn't this be true in the case of the people living in Puerto Rico? 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, the sort of principles of rehabilitation and, and actually, interestingly, in Puerto Rico, uh, the rehabilitation of prisoners is guaranteed by the, by the island's constitution. So it's a constitutional right if you're incarcerated that you should undergo some sort of rehabilitative process. Yeah, and people that I speak to, uh, both sort of prisoner advocacy groups and the ACLU of Puerto Rico, basically say that all the people they're talking to are incredibly concerned about, A, you know, just the, the sort of huge emotional upheaval that this is going to inflict on people who go and do it, but also really what it means for Puerto Rican society more broadly. So one of the people in the federal public defense office that I spoke to spoke about concerns about warehousing of prisoners in private prisons. So we know from a review that the Obama administration commissioned back in 2016 that prisons that are operated by the private sector are across the board more punitive and less safe than those operated by the public. And I think that the facility that they're talking about using, there are lots of concerns that basically this is about warehousing inmates and just trying to cut costs rather than looking at their rights uh, to rehabilitation. Now, if the Obama administration said that um, private prisons aren't something the federal government is going to do, the Trump administration reversed that. In this case, though, is it um, considered the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico that is doing this rather than the federal government, even though the federal government's oversight board is making them do this? I mean, you touch on a really important issue there. I mean, obviously, you know, the decision is ultimately approved by the Federal Oversight Board. It is a decision that the corrections minister who I interviewed ardently argued was the right one for Puerto Rico. Um, and it's basically a suggestion that was made by the Oversight Board that has now you know, been approved by the Puerto Rican government. So it's basically the Commonwealth working hand in hand with you know, cost-cutting measures that have essentially been imposed by the federal government. And the prisoners themselves, could you tell us a little bit about the gang issue in Puerto Rican prisons and how that would fold into moving this many prisoners to Arizona? Yeah, absolutely. So Puerto Rican prison culture is really underpinned by gang culture. And when I was there, I visited a number of wings in the Biomone facility. One of the medium security wings that I went to was basically completely stratified by gang affiliation. So it was a wing of about 1,200 inmates, and four of the wards were basically run by an association called Association Nieta, which claimed to have about 6,000 members, all incarcerated in Puerto Rico's prisons across the island. It's the largest prison association. It was formed in the late 1970s and has connections to the independence movement. And basically numerous government audits and inspections have basically found that this association runs a sort of shadow system of government inside prison. When I went in there, I was introduced to a guy who claimed to be a spokesman for the entire association. That was later confirmed to me by a number of prison officials. And the gang itself has a very rigid power structure, so I'm very confident that he was talking on behalf of the association. And he said, our entire association is opposed to this move. We don't want it to happen. We're forced to do it. There'll be chaos in the prison system. And, you know, people I've spoken to have said that can be anywhere from, you know, rioting to prison strikes. So it's potentially going to present a huge issue for the corrections secretary in the department if they're going to try and delve into large prison associations like Nieta. I'm talking with Oliver Lachland. He's a senior reporter for The Guardian, and we're talking about his article, After Maria, Puerto Rico to Move 3,200 Inmates to Arizona. I'm kind of interested if they can get the gang members um, to cooperate and get them to Arizona, uh, what they are going to get when they get there. 
Eloy, Arizona, and the La Palma Correctional Center there. It's an interesting-sounding place. There's three prisons and an immigrant detention center on the same block, and they're all managed by Core Civic, um, this privatization group. And the prison next door, the, the, the Saguaro, houses inmates from Hawaii, already does this, sends prisoners to Arizona, And there was a promotional video on YouTube about how they treat their island inmates there from Hawaii. Uh, Here's a little clip of it. And there is an element of Hawaii island life that permeates these activities. During the summer months, Warden Todd Thomas and many of the prison staff wear aloha shirts to reflect the spirit of Hawaii at Saguaro. Warden Thomas ensures that Saguaro offers a culturally sensitive environment for Hawaii inmates including a menu approved by Hawaii to ensure seasonings, recipes, and cooking styles blend well with Hawaii tradition and culture. Sawaro's weekly menu may include rice, shoyu chicken, fish, spam, stir-fry pork, or local moko burgers. Special meals and seasonal foods are served during Hawaii holidays and celebrations such as makahiki. Each year, Hawaii inmates participate in the opening and closing of Makahiki, a traditional celebration of Thanksgiving with Hawaiian music, special foods, and fellowship. Hawaii inmates also participate in recognizing celebrations such as Prince Kuhio Day and King Kamehameha Day. That's a little clip from a promotional video about the Correctional Center in Eloy, Arizona, where prisoners from Hawaii go and are housed in Arizona. And they're thinking about something the same for prisoners in Puerto Rico. Oliver, it sounds really good. It sounds culturally sensitive and everything is terrific. They talk in the video about their dog training program a lot, and it just sounds better than the original. It sure does. I have obviously been to CoreCivic and asked them about how they're going to adapt the Eloy Detention Center to sort of accommodate Puerto Rican inmates. The corrections minister has assured me that every single prison guard and prison staff member who works there when Puerto Rican inmates will be there will at least be bilingual, speak Spanish and English. Inmates that I spoke to said that they had been told they would be offered English-speaking classes. All their sort of rewards for good behavior would be carried over into the facility in Arizona I mean, I guess a lot of that is rhetoric. We don't know exactly how it's going to work because Core Civic have not been particularly forthcoming about the terms of the contract. And as far as I'm aware, it hasn't actually been signed yet. Uh, The last time I had contact with the Puerto Rican government, which was about a week ago, they said it was a few days away from being signed. We don't know how much it's worth. We don't know exactly how the audit process is going to work, for example. But the facility has already been used for an out-of-state program by the state of California and a number of audits for the La Palma facility have found a number of very severe issues with the quality of care that inmates get given there. So, for example, a 2010 report found that the facility regularly overused solitary confinement, um, failed to provide video conferencing for inmates, failed to provide full complement of programming for Hispanic inmates, which is obviously going to be a crucial issue when it comes to detaining Puerto Rican inmates, and basically a whole range of sort of basic security and safety flaws, which are really kind of associated with privatized prisons in general. And Eloy, Arizona is a kind of interesting place. It's This is a big deal in Eloy. There's a large facility. There's Hawaiians. There's an immigrant uh, detention center as well. And there would be a Puerto Rican block with these 3,200 inmates. It's, it's a big system there. It is a big system. And, you know, one of the really crucial issues is about how that facility is going to be adapted to 
look after such a, a broad range of inmates. So one of the one of the things that they're planning to do is to transfer inmates of all categories. So that, that ranges from minimum security inmates to high security inmates. The uh, La Palma facility is a medium security prison. I did ask Core Civic, how are you going to, you know, adapt the facility to accommodate the range of requirements that come with, you know, the different sort of phases of rehabilitation that these inmates are going to be going through. They didn't give me an answer. Is there some other solution where the prison system could save money and not ship people to Arizona? Certainly not one that the Puerto Rican government is currently considering. So I did ask the Corrections Secretary, Eric Rollon, what he would do if he wasn't able to get the 3,200 voluntary sign-ups to use this out-of-state program. And I should be clear, this is not 3,200 all in one go. They want to do 1,200 next year and then do it in batch to 700 for the next three years. And he basically told me there's no contingency plan because he'd had these expressions of interest. He believed this was essentially a financial imperative that he had to follow through with. And what they're planning to do is basically once they get this program rolling, they will actually start to close down a number of the publicly run facilities on the island. Is there any legal challenge that can be made here? I noticed a quote from the ACLU saying that this is human trafficking you're you're going to take people against their will to Eloy, Arizona. But does that is any legal challenge would that have a chance or is that legitimate? Well certainly when I was there, the ACL you were talking about potentially preparing a challenge to this move. Um it's difficult at the moment because as far as I'm aware, uh, the contract hasn't yet been signed, so I don't think they're able to instigate any sort of legal process until there's a there's a contract in place. But it really comes back to those constitutional rights that I was talking about that are guaranteed by the Puerto Rican Constitution. You know, people at the ACLU basically say that by doing this, you're denying their constitutional rights because it's not going to encourage rehabilitation. And obviously, there's very significant issues around civil rights and the idea of what sort of consent you can offer when you're awarded the state. And so the, the ACLU of Puerto Rico told me that basically, you know, even if people are saying that they're interested in doing this and they're, they're sort of volunteering, the idea of consent and voluntarily going for this program it's basically impossible when you're being held by the state. Is this issue a big deal in Puerto Rico? Did you get the sense that people were riled up about this? Is there media coverage? There's not a huge amount of media coverage. I mean, it has been covered very well by a number of local journalists, uh, particularly a group of a number of investigative journalists who have uh, really been grappling with this since it was sort of first discussed back in April. I think obviously, you know, Puerto Rico is still going through recovery across the board on many, many issues when it comes to, you know, public health, as I mentioned before, access to power, access to education, that sort of thing. And so really, you know, the rights of prisoners, even though prisoners have the right to vote in Puerto Rico and, you know, associations like Association that do have some degree of political power in Puerto Rico, ultimately it's not really an issue that I think is kind of top of the mind of most people that I spoke to when I was there. Did you get much of a reaction to your article in The Guardian this month? Well, I actually spoke to your colleagues in New York, Public Radio in New York, and uh, Core Civic issued a statement basically accusing my piece of not adhering to facts without being very specific about what they were really talking about, called it sensationalist, which again, not really specifying what they meant by that. So yeah, we obviously reached out to them and tried to get as much information as we could about the contract. We really dealt with some of the very significant uh, civil rights issues that accompany this whole plan. I think they weren't particularly pleased about that. But yeah, you know, I mean, that, that's really been the response. Our reporting was very well read in Puerto Rico, across the United States, and we're really pleased to sort of um, write about issues like this, because obviously, when it comes to civil rights of inmates, an issue that The Guardian takes seriously, we report on vulnerable communities wherever they are. If you were a betting man, would you think that these 3,200 inmates are going to go to Arizona? 
It's a very difficult one to say. I mean, I'm, you know, obviously, I spent a lot of time with the Corrections Secretary and really tried to hammer into, you know, how he thinks this plan is going to work and how he can ensure that it's going to be voluntary. And I think there are a number of pitfalls, as we've discussed, potential pitfalls, some pitfalls that have basically already occurred. So, you know, one of the things that he wanted to make sure he told me was that, you know, we're briefing all these inmates about, um, you know, the facilities that are going to be on offer and the prisons that we're going to transfer them to, all the sort of rights they're going to, uh, you know, keep and the educational programs they'll be given while they're there. After I asked him a few more questions, it transpired that he'd actually briefed them on the wrong prisons. The entire prison populace had been told that they were exploring two prisons in Texas and Mississippi, which were then no longer being considered for the plan. So really, there was a very, very obvious shambolic nature to this whole thing. And I think ultimately, when the entire enterprise, as Secretary Rolon says, you know, is about cost cutting, I think you have to be very aware that when you're not putting rights as the sort of first issue for um, determining why they're doing this, then ultimately there are going to be pitfalls and difficulties ahead. Oliver Lachland is a senior reporter at The Guardian. He spent a week in Puerto Rican prisons last month for the story after Maria, Puerto Rico, to move 3,200 inmates to Arizona. Thanks a lot for joining us, Oliver, and being a part of our Puerto Reconstruction series, which we feature on Mondays. Thanks very much for having me. Coming up after the break, we'll talk about the environmental lessons that we're teaching children when we read to them at bedtime. I'm Jerome McDonnell, and you're listening to Worldview on WBEZ. This is Worldview on WBEZ. I'm Jerome McDonald. Liam Hennigan is a professor of environmental science at DePaul University. In his book, Beasts at Bedtime, Revealing the Environmental Wisdom in Children's Literature, he's turned his expertise into thinking through what we teach our children about the natural world when we read to them each night. Liam, thanks for joining us. It's good to see you. Well, thank you so much for the invitation. How did you get into this topic? I don't think a lot of environmental scientists are going at children's books with the kind of seriousness that you did. You really took a survey and brought numbers to it and Mm -hmm. really dug in. Yeah, this book has a kind of a slightly unusual uh, genesis. Um, A number of years ago, we became empty nesters. And I don't know if you've had, I guess you've had the experience of that mild trauma, which we kind of, you know, respond to in different ways, right? I know some people kind of bring cocktail hour forward or change the bedrooms into (laughs) like a discotheque. But, you know, mine was a quieter route. Like I reread a lot of the stories that my children had read as they grew up. And I guess I hadn't fully appreciated it before uh, that they were replete with environmental themes, particularly you know, with um, stories about animals. So the project then was to really kind of unfold the depth of environmental information in these books. One of the things that uh, struck me was 
your conversation about parents and how 80% of Americans rely on outdated myths about the environment. And the the parents are not as well-versed in the environment as they think. And they get involved with these children's books yeah. that are all about the environment. And they have to know some stuff or reintroduce some stuff to their own heads. Yeah. So environmental literacy is um, not as well-developed, to put it generously, amongst uh, us adults um, in the U.S. as maybe we would want it to be. So it's not only that we're suffering from maybe poorly kind of understood half myths about the environment. We really don't understand, uh, I think, you know, uh, the kind of full array of information that you need to have about the environment in order to be not only good environmental stewards, but, um, you know, good uh, educators of our children when it comes to the environment. So the uh, book is not setting out to criticize parents, uh, but it's kind of setting out the idea that, you know, as you read to your children at night, um, you are probably handling much more kind of um, kind of explosive material than you imagined. But in order to liberate the potential of this literature, you have to uh, become more environmentally literate yourself. So in many ways, the book is kind of a, a way, hopefully an enjoyable way, of allowing parents to understand the full dimensions of kind of environmental concern that they need to know about in order to kind of be good uh, guardians. One of the things that is coming at parents these days is the Leave No Child Inside movement. And the idea for environmental education is to get the kids outside, but so much of their life is spent uh, inside. I mean, it's almost impossible to get them out outside as much as you would like. Yeah. Yeah, so I think that was uh, the Leave No Child um, Inside movement, which was really spearheaded by Richard Louv's book from about a decade ago, Last Child in the Woods, where he identified what he's calling uh, nature deficit disorder. The recognition that contact with nature is not just something that is an add-on, but is critical to the health and well-being, not only, not only of children, of course, but to uh, adults. And that um, that book and the powerful movement that developed around it kind of motivated environmental educators to get kids away from the soft comforts of the couch and the kind of Game Boy uh, consoles and out into the wood where where necessary. But I agree with that movement, and I, I, I think it's undeniable that kids need the benefit of being out in the woods. But they also, after those time, that time in the garden or in the park or in the woods, they come home. And the objective for me is to transform the quality of reflection that occurs in the home. Leave no child inside for sure, but leave no child inside without a book. You end up quantifying how much time Thoreau, the the great yeah. outdoors guy, spent sitting at his desk writing, and yeah. it's some staggering amount of time. He he was indoors a whole lot. Yeah, yeah, and I, I think we often think of our naturalists as skipping around from, you know, mossy bog to mossy bog, <laughs> or from, you know, clambering up in trees like John uh, Muir. But the reality, of course, is the, the fact that we're reading their accounts is... Uh, you know, hinged on the fact that they come home and they write. So this balancing of experience of the world with reflection about the world is important. And that reflection is often done 
at home, at the desk, banging out words, or reading. I'm talking, I'm talking with Liam Hennigan, professor of environmental studies at DePaul, about his book, Beasts at Bedtime, Revealing the Environmental Wisdom in Children's Literature. And you have a really wide-ranging palette. You're talking about the Hunger Games, Calvin and Hobbes, yeah. everybody. You've got little essays about all of them, your own reflections about your own life. Uh, I was interested in the J.R. Tolkien yeah. uh, example because I realized he was a bit of a you know recluse guy. He, he didn't yeah. like he wasn't a well-traveled guy. I knew that yeah. about him, but he his environmentalism and his books so full of the environment and based on the travels through wild places. He he was really a guy who. Um, it all came out of uh, his childhood mm -hmm. and where he lived initially and, and his love of trees. He was a very kind of average, simple uh, environmental reaction that he did yeah. something powerful with. Yeah. Yeah, there's an extraordinary chapter in um, his one of the biographies of Tolkien where uh, the biographer shows some of his family's snapshots and they are remarkably ordinary for a man who created an entire universe out of his mind. You know, his contact with the world was actually pretty, you know, unremarkable. Um, the, so the um, one of the things that kind of is remarkable about Tolkien is his attraction to trees and his concern about the British countryside. So it's not often mentioned that, um, and I think it's true to say, that Tolkien is really one of the first environmentalists. He kind of expressed his concern about the destruction of woods and of individual trees in the British countryside and recreated those concerns in the legendarium. Many of your listeners will remember that a critical scene in the uh, Fellowship of the Ring, or at least in the Lord of the Rings series, is where... Uh, Treebeard, uh, the ant, uh, recognizes that damage is being done to the forest and he turns and attacks Saruman, the kind of evil, evil wizard. So the, you know, there is a direct kind of reflection, you know, of uh, Tolkien's concern that the British countryside is being destroyed through mechanization and industrialization and the like. And I learned that there's a word for this, solastoga? Oh, solastalgia. solastalgia. Yeah, yeah. This is uh, from an uh, Australian philosopher, environmental philosopher called Glenn Albrecht. So Glenn Albrecht kind of coins this term solastalgia for the panic and concern and fear that we have of the places that are important to us will be destroyed, you know, um, when we return to them, for, for instance. I think that's kind of like a baseline for most parents and most people. We, we Nobody likes that. Nobody yeah. likes seeing what they knew to be in their childhood different. Yeah, yeah. In a bad way. Yeah, I, I think it's, um, I mean, we've all got experiences of that in our, in our lifetime. Um, but several of the stories that I'm interested in, in in this book, in writing this book, are those kind of uh, circumstances where a staunch defense is made on behalf of the environment. So the Lorax, of course, is the classic example of standing up against the destruction of the forest. I have a slightly different take on that than other uh, people who have reflected on that story uh, before. But there's other kind of examples where, um, you know, protection of nature, uh, you know, uh, the protection of nature, uh, for instance, that wonderful Carl Heisen novel, Hoot, 
where the kids actually mounted defense on behalf yeah. of an endangered creature. So destruction, of course, but also protection against that destruction. Uh, you know, in the book, there's a lot about the pastoral, which I don't think most people think about yeah. when they're sitting down with their children and reading these books, where most of the action does yeah. seem to take place is this in-between land between yeah. our dwellings and what is um, more rich forest. Uh, you talk about Beatrix Potter and the, her books, which you go back and find kind of remarkable yeah. and, and super good in this respect. Yeah. You know, Beatrix Potter's books, of course, are still wonderful to read. And I think they're extremely compelling because Beatrix Potter herself was not an accidental naturalist. She was a naturalist. She had a strong scientific interest in these things, and particularly in fungi, you know, which she scientifically published wow. on. But she um, incorporated her kind of knowledge of nature and her keen eye for natural things into those books. So Peter Rabbit is not, um, is very rabbity in his behavior. He's not just an anthropomorphized rabbit. He has a lot of real rabbit uh, qualities. The beauty of that story as well is that even though it's pastoral in the sense that it does reflect a kind of a bucolic countryside, a balance, yet at the same time, it doesn't steer away from dealing with difficult issues. Because, you know, right at the beginning of the Peter Rabbit story, we see a picture of a rabbit stew. If that is not kind of a reminder that even in harmonious times, there's threats of danger out there, I, do, I don't know what, what else could symbolize that. The whole death thing is so important in most of these books with nature and anthropomorphized rabbits yeah. all coming to their end or potentially coming to their end. Did you come to some conclusion about the anthropomorphizing? I mean, a lot of scientists, yeah. you know, never do that. You yeah. can't, you're supposed to not do that. Yeah. That leads to distortions. But yeah. in these children's books, we're doing it all the time. Yeah. I think there's often a false conception that children's stories are all kind of harmony and balance and good things happen. But... Um, I think once you start reading them again, you realize how omnipresent death is. You know, it's kind of baked into the pie, so as to, uh, so as to speak. So often then people wonder whether children's stories are really up to the challenge of educating us on environmental stuff. You know, whether children are not really ready, you know, to deal with these sterner themes. But I think even a rough perusal of many of the books that I, I talk about. For instance, Babar, the story of Babar, opens up with the killing of Babar's mother. This is not, by the way, to horrify your listeners and have them run away from their children's books. It's a reminder that children's books have always dealt in beautiful ways and instructive ways with some of the biggest existential themes that we have. We've got to live, but death is part of part and parcel of this universe. I'm talking with Liam Hennigan about his book, Beasts at Bedtime, Revealing the Environmental Wisdom in Children's Literature. You, do you want to read a bit of, from it? Oh, I would. Uh, so I'm just going to choose one short uh, section. It's right at the end of uh, kind of a longish account on the whole notion of wilderness 
And I, I think, in fact, although it's in the middle of the book, it's a pretty good summary of what I think I'm up to. Themes of wilderness in children's stories uh, are not written in responses to contemporary debates about environmental philosophy. How can they be, since storytelling, as I've tried to show in this book, is antecedent to those debates? Stories old and new confirm that for the human being, there is always a self and a non-self, a hearth and a wider world, the soothing and the fearsome. The idea of wilderness in children's stories articulates and at the same time amplifies the vertiginous aspects of the wider world. But as often as not, these stories provide succor in navigating the terrors of the terra incognita that surrounds the child. Yes, you too must leave the fireside, as humans have always done. You too must make your way in the world like the little puss in boots that you are. You must overcome obstacles, encounter fresh wonders, fail, pick yourself up, and maybe even fail again. But you will be rewarded by the beauty of the world as you encounter it, by the love you find along the way, and yes, by the bubbles of success, fleeting as those, these trinkets may be. Though nature will claim you in the end, and your atoms will be scattered beneath the soil and into the winds, if you've attended well to life's necessary tasks, you will know what it is to have been wild, and you will know what it is to have been free, if only for a few moments. Liam Hennigan writing from his book, Beasts at Bedtime. Uh, I did get a kick out of the chapter on where the wild things are. Yeah. And your comparison of it to to cave paintings and kind of the primal uh, thing that that book taps into that makes it such a classic. And, yeah. Uh, and then that passage there is kind of reflecting on the the journey and the, the safety of bed yeah. and sleep and the whole bit. Yeah, where the wild things are is such an appealing and attractive story. And I think often we forget just how short the text is. So the text is really only a, a few hundred words. Most of the story is coming from those pictures. And it's probably not fair to compare Sendak's work with the work of an entire epoch of human history. Okay. But at the same time, we know that kind of images throughout history have been used as part of kind of the way in which we tell the narrative of the world. So what Sendak is doing in some ways is inviting us into that kind of antique storytelling. Sure, you read the words with your child, but you also spend time talking about these beautiful images. And that image is kind of a reminder to the child that, yes, you know, you may be assailed by strong emotion and you may be angry with your mom or your dad, but, and you may kind of go off in a wild state, but ultimately there's something to come back to. You travel to the wilds, but there's also the comforts of the hearth at the end of the day. We were chatting before we went on the air about our own children and whether we did enough to get them yeah. to a state that of, of like good stewardship for the next generation. Yeah, It's a little bit of a a mystery how to do it and whether we've done a good job or not. What did, what do you think the contribution of our, our, I mean, this is, these bedtime stories are an opportunity to beef up that moment. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in some ways, like this book is a love story to my family, you know, to my wife and my children. And in writing it, I got to think quite a bit about, 
you know, uh, you know, what work did we get done or what did we accomplish in, in raising our children? And I'm as proud, you know, as most of us, I'll leave others to describe the short, shortcomings of my, of my children. But I, I know that kind of reading to them has been essential in furnishing um, kind of important things to them. When kids are very young, yours and my, mine included, the amount of experience that they're drawing upon is very limited you know, compared to the experiences that you and I draw on as adults. What the stories are doing, of course, is increasing the reservoir of experiences that they can draw upon. And, you know, when so many of these children's stories are about animals, about trees, about forests, about kind of the wild, uh, you kind of know that if you are kind of attentive to it, you're providing a lot of those vitamins to them. Liam Hennigan is the author of Beasts at Bedtime, Revealing the Environmental Wisdom in Children's Literature. It's out by University of Chicago Press. I enjoyed reading it. I enjoyed talking with you about it. I can't believe you calculated how much time Calvin from Calvin and Hives spent outdoors. 46% of his time was spent outdoors. That is not a child who is uh, missing out on the outdoors. Yeah, and I, I had to get permission from my children about destroying some of their favorite childhood books by marking that up to make that calculation. <laughs> well, your children made another <laughs> sacrifice for their dad. Uh, Liam Hannigan, Beasts at Bedtime, thanks very much for joining me. Thank you, Jerome. Hope you can join us tomorrow for Worldview and hope you can, you know, regularly tune into the podcast. We do podcast this program. Download Worldview wherever you get your podcasts. Worldview is produced by Julian Haida and Steve Bynum. Viviana Garcia Blanco and Shazmin Hussein helped with production assistance. Thanks to Shelley Steffens for engineering. I'm Jerome McDonald. You've been listening to Worldview on WBEZ. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR.